Hello and welcome to the Bluetech Research Thought Leadership interview series. In this first episode, Paul O'Callaghan, CEO and founder of Bluetech Research, conducts an interview with David Lloyd Owen, author of Global Water Funding, Innovation and Efficiency as Enablers for Safe, Secure and Affordable Supplies. SDG 6, Achieving Clean Water and Sanitation for All by 2030, was not on track even before the pandemic. According to the UN, the rate of progress needs to quadruple if we are to get there by 2030. It is very clear that a paradigm shift is needed, which focuses on innovations in technology, but also within business models. Maybe one way to achieve SDG 6 is to find a way to view it as a market opportunity. This conversation sets the scene on our current progress towards SDG 6 and answers some of the many questions that we have, including how do we make water affordable for people? Are bottled water kiosks the cell phone of water infrastructure? Rural versus urban, which problem do you solve first? And funding versus the funding gap, how much money have we spent and how much more money is required to really solve this problem? We hope you enjoy this rich and thought-provoking interview. Thank you very much for joining us today for this conversation. I've been really looking forward to it. I read with great interest your new and latest book, Global Water Funding. I think everyone in the sector owes you a debt of gratitude for the extensive research and looking at SDG 6 in such detail. So perhaps we could begin with the story so far, because this isn't the first time that we have attempted to solve the global water challenge in terms of access. It goes back 40 years to the United Nations World Decade for Water, which between 1980 and 1990 was supposed to provide universal access to water and sanitation. It did well, but was overwhelmed by the growth in population being more than the number of people connected. So in 2000, we had the Millennium Development Goals, which sought to halve the number without access to basic water and sanitation by 2015. Two things happened in this time. First of all, the crude number for access to basic water was achieved but very much not so for basic sanitation. It also became increasingly clear that the expressions such as basic and improved were largely meaningless. The only criteria that matters is safe water and safe sanitation. So when the Millennium Development, uh, um, sorry, the Sustainable Development Goals were launched in 2015, SAFE became the norm, along with um, a rather firm set of targets in their delivery. And like in that intervening period, you, you note that although we made some progress, the population grew, so to one extent we were treading water, and it wasn't necessarily access to safe water, it was this improved water, which is a vague definition. In looking at the book and reading through some of the statistics and looking at the broader economic context in which all of this took place, I noted that, you know, in 1990, 60% of the Asian population would have been classified as in extreme poverty. By 2013, that total number had actually dropped to 3.5%. So one would wonder to what extent, if the United Nations hadn't set those goals, how much of that progress 
might have happened just organically by virtue of the fact that we were moving people out of extreme poverty into at least you know level two or level three in terms of income there are two discrete threads here first of all there is personal wealth or lack of poverty and secondly discretionary spending what you can actually spend on if people are getting better off but there is no determination by the state to deliver infrastructure and improved access then improved access will not take place uh, most certainly the fact that people were better off meant that if issues like affordability changed that simply that there was more money to be spent however ultimately it all depends on a government's ability and willingness to deliver infrastructure and to deliver improved access to that infrastructure and you know in terms of the numbers we often hear this number of you know 780 million people don't have access to drinking water could you comment on the validity of that number it's actually a rather vague and meaningless number because it, again it's improved or basic water which is actually water which is unfit to drink the number that really matters is safe drinking water there the total is closer to 2 billion rather than 700 million and for sanitation 4 billion so we live in a world where the majority of people do not have access to safe sanitation that is the scale of the reality as opposed to the presumed problem and one of the other things that really struck me in in reading through your work was the role of bottled water in achieving the safe access like most of us in the sector we we look very much down our noses on bottled water as any means of providing access to safe water we believe that the ultimate role is in utility but the numbers are, are very hard to argue with if you you know the consumption rose from 26 million people in 1990 to 292 million by 2010 so it appears that whether we like it or not it, it is a part of the solution that many people are turning to in the absence of anything else Yes, it certainly is. You get, for example, a large number of middle class people in developing countries where they will most certainly use tap water for washing, for flushing, so on and so forth. But they would not trust that water. So either they treat it at home or they use bottled water. Uh, in Mexico, for example, the per capita consumption is exceptionally high. In California, you find that actual consumer spending on bottled water is greater than spending on tapped water and sanitation services, which is a rather odd state of affairs. That's an incredible statistic in California. And you know, if this continues to play out, is there a worry or a concern that we could institutionalize this as the norm? Yes. We can't just assume that consumers do what they're told. Discretionary spending is an extremely important element in water finance. So if consumers do not perceive that they're getting an adequate service from utilities or lack of access, they go for alternative sources, whether it's bottled water, point of entry, point of use, and so on and so forth. As a result, it means that spending is being diverted away from the utilities 
And unless utilities can regain and build public confidence and ally that with access to safe services, it means you start going into danger of having a vicious spiral of declining money being spent on utility services compared with the alternatives. Which leads on to the issue of the funding gap. And where will the funding come from to achieve SDG 6? By whatever timeline. And there's, of course, there's the perceived role of OECD funding, there's the perceived role of government support, and then there's the ability for the, the people who are accessing the service to contribute. Could you speak a little bit about where you see the funding issue at the moment? Funding is the essential challenge. People are ready and willing to pay a sensible, affordable amount for services. Quite often, politicians, though, have ideas about access to free water or access to subsidized water, which actually acts as an impediment on funding. So first of all, we need to have the willingness of governments to take on funding and translate that into projects, the willingness to communicate to the public what they get for their money. And then even then, we still have an essential gap between tariff income and the amount of money which needs to be spent, not just in delivering a new structure, but in maintaining it. And unless we can get round that gap, the sustainable development goals will now and forever always be just over the horizon of practicality and affordability. And estimates vary very widely in terms of what would need to be invested to achieve this, but I think there's a consensus that it's it's north of $100 billion a year sustained over you know decades that would be required. By some estimates, it appears that the current level of funding may be as little as 16 billion a year. That is that's the extreme low estimate. Um, the various estimates of the actual need go between 140 and perhaps $300 billion a year. Um, $16 billion a year put in a context is a fragment of what is spent in the USA alone. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, one thing you've noticed is that we are getting better at the very least at monitoring progress. And that at least fills a gap. We know now where we are, maybe where we need to go. That is a fundamental change between the Millennium and Sustainable Development Goals. The Millennium Development Goals give the impression of very much being output oriented in that so long as things happened, people were happy. Uh, clearly, things didn't happen. The sustainable development goal, on the other hand, has gone right through to taking each country and assessing its ability in terms of management structures, management experience, budgeting, target setting, where the funds come from, where the funds go. And what they have revealed is that there is a essential divide between good intentions and the capacity now to deliver such good intentions. And as I stand back from this and think about whether we can achieve this, I mean, it's almost, I mean, I think it's pretty definite we won't achieve this by 2030, no. Um, but if we're to solve this at all, it's got to become a solvable problem. And in the way that it's currently defined, this idea of giving everybody access to 100 or 200 litres of safe water and hoping that this will happen through institutionalized connection seems to be uh, hope, hopeful and optimistic. 
Whereas if we think about it in terms of affordability, because as you noted, people are willing to pay. Um, I think you mentioned that in Kenya, people will pay 17% of their income for a mobile phone. So the statistics of what's reasonable to pay for water, people say 5% is reasonable of their income, but maybe they're willing to pay more. Um, my sense is that if somebody could figure out a way to simply provide the service to these 2 billion people that don't have access to safe water and the 4 billion that don't have access to safe sanitation within a reasonable percentage of their income, you would unlock that door and then you'd start to see the progress towards achieving these goals. Indeed, because what you actually find is that when people don't have access to municipal projects and so on, they have to use informal providers who provide water services at a higher, far greater cost. It can take up to 25% of household income to get unsafe water from informal services. So there is a desire for people to spend money, a reasonable and affordable amount of money on a good service. The gap therefore is the ability and the willingness to, to meet that desire. The best corollary I can give is India, where the fixed wire telephone was very much something which was given to those in power, with good connections, with wealth and so on. So at their peak, 4% of the population of India had a fixed wire telephone. Mobile phones were simply available to anybody, which is why in numerical terms at least, far more people in India today have access to a mobile phone than a lavatory. It's a strange way the world develops. Now, of course, the, India is a good illustrated case in point of the urban versus rural divide. A lot of the challenges with open defecation are in a rural setting where many people still live. When you stand back and you look at where we are, rural versus urban, the divide is very stark. About 70% of our issues are rural. We seem to be winning the urban battle to some extent making some progress, but it's still at this point in time, most of the, the people who lack access are, are rural, but it seems it's a moving target that if you rush to try and solve the rural problem, by the time you've got there in 10 or 15 or 20 years time, a significant portion of those folks may well find they're living in cities. Yes, the stranded asset issue is one which affects both urban and rural communities. The classic case study would be Detroit in the USA, where there was population flight from the old city center to the suburbs. The utilities had to maintain both sets of networks, the one which had been abandoned and the one which had been developed in its wake. In Japan, we're now seeing utilities having to cope with falling populations. I find the year 2050 an extremely useful potential benchmark for long-term planning because, first of all, it represents the effectively, as far as we understand now, the end of or the peak of the great rural to urban migration. So we know what a long-term vision of rural populations may be. And secondly, in a number of countries, we're going to start seeing the end of the population boom per se. So instead of just saying we're constantly running after an ever disappearing target, we have to look towards a point 
where we know this is where we are going to be and that is where we can take things from and deliver to that target. And, and 2050 is also very useful in thinking about, as you said, when things stabilise, the absolute availability of the resource. I think fundamentally you cannot provide access to a resource that is not there. And if the concentration of people are in these large urban centres and if the predictions for climate change come to bear and affect scarcity and, and excess, it seems to me that then some of the other aspects of SDG 6, 6.3 to 6.6 become very important because they help to balance those extremes of availability and they, in, in a sense, may help us to achieve 6.1 and 6.2. Yes, access to water and sanitation is super, but if the wastewater is not treated, that impacts both the natural environment and the water cycle and the available of safe water itself. Likewise, the need to quantify the amount of water countries, people and industries use is essential in long-term planning for demand. The old paradigm of supply management, in other words, it doesn't matter, we'll just try and chuck as much water from various sources towards the problem, is an anachronism. We really now need to say, how can we make demand today and demand in the future fit what we know we have and what we know we can't run from? It's, it's a realistic approach to the issue rather than um, an aspirational approach to thinking about the issue. And you've given some really inspiring examples. One of the nice things is that, you know, as you've concluded your book, it almost was like a, you know, a five-act play in itself. <laughs> she brought us to the brink of hopeless despair by pointing out that there was very little hope of achieving this by 2030. The funding gap was too wide. But then you hold out a candle of optimism that, look, we, we can achieve it by 2050, um, but really affordability, efficiency need to be at the heart of this, bringing down capital costs. And then you you go on to give really interesting examples of that with blue-green infrastructure. I think one was in New York and there was another illustrated example in the UK. Yes, in, in a sense, it's rather like your classic novel, isn't it? The gloom setting in the darkness before dawn. And then when all appears lost, Despair is met by hope and something comes over the horizon. So, for example, we have three ways of addressing these problems. First of all, operational efficiency. Secondly, capital efficiency, making sure our investments are used effectively. And finally, in things like demand management and nature-based solutions. To give an example of the latter, in New York, there was a plan to spend a considerable amount of money on water treatment facilities on the assumption of a shrinking and degrading resource. Instead, an alternative came up, which was to conserve the watershed. A sum of money was spent on conserving watersheds in the Catskill Mountains upriver from New York, which was less than a fifth of the amount that had been budgeted on the treatment and transport infrastructure, which it was assumed would be required um, if those resources degraded. In the UK, privatisation in England and Wales is contentious, but the 
management of price regimes brought in by the regulator offboard has seen a significant and consistent decrease in real operating and capital spending costs since 1990, which far outweigh the original assumptions at the time of privatization. And one of the whole issues here has been as the regulator gets a forever finessed view of the economics of the sector, they work and work and work on areas of efficiency to incentivize utilities to do things better and to deliver more for less. And that's very encouraging. And, you know, I began to look at the challenges here and I aggregated up these people on two to eight dollars a day, two billion people, I think it's 3.5 billion on eight to 32 dollars a day. And you think about, okay, what is 10% of their income or 15 or 20% of their income? And let's take 500,000 of these people and assume that they are willing to pay 10% of their income. How much is that? And could you do this? Could you provide the service economically for that sum of money? Because it, it is significant when you aggregate it up. And what's really encouraging as well are how you can achieve those efficiencies. There was a really great example in Senegal, I think, that you pointed to where they were embracing digital technologies that brought efficiencies to bear. Yes, what happened in the in Dakar was that latrine collection and emptying was traditionally a monopoly, uh, a cartel, and there was a fixed price charge for the service, which simply meant that emptiers went out and picked up things as they were told. The revolution came in with the smartphone, a central exchange point where customers could ring in and say, my latrine needs emptying. And then that point goes out and says to all the emptiers, ABC need their latrines waiting, emptying. So instead of going ad hoc willy-nilly around the city, the latrine entrepreneurs were able to work out the most efficient route to fill up their tanks. As a result, the cost of the service has fallen between uh, to a third to a half of its previous level, purely through efficiency and the power that a smartphone can unleash upon both the customer the operator and the service provider. Well, if you can reduce by a half or a third the costs, you, you may as well have effectively doubled the income of the population because, you know, net net, you have the ability to provide that service now for a percentage of their income that is in proportion to what they're willing to pay. I think that's a, you know, that's where I hope to continue to do some work with you on this actually, is to look at those types of examples and consider how the system can be imagined in a way that you can realize those efficiency gains and ones that are scalable, that if that works in Dakar, there's no reason why it shouldn't work in cities right across sub-Saharan Africa or you know Asia as well. So David, I think that, that's been extremely enlightening. Um, I'm very grateful to you for doing this research work, for speaking with us today, and I very much look forward to continuing the work with you. Mm -hmm.